my talk is going to be about the characteristics of intellectuals in a financial crisis. And more specifically, a much shorter title would have been Popular uh, Economists of the Great Depression as Hayekian Intellectuals. And I'll start with this. See, I'm, Finijem is my firm. I'm a trader. I've been a trader for about a decade and a half. And over time, I've become a sort of a buff of economic history and, and more specifically financial market history. And so I found that everything I read about the Great Depression, there was some reference to popular economists. Uh, for example, Townsend, Francis Townsend, uh, uh, Huey Long, uh, all those fellows, Father Coughlin. And uh, the thing was that even in Rothbard's uh, America's Great, Great Depression or in Ray Moley's uh, After Seven Years and many others, they allude to those few, but they say that there were many more. They say that there were, in some cases, they say there were dozens. So um, what I did was I essentially set out uh, to try and find as many of those as I could. Um, I wanted to first kind of catalog them and summarize them. And then what I wanted to do was I wanted to, to look for the high-level trends and uh, recurring themes, and then finally, using some analytical framework, which I hadn't yet determined, uh, look for even deeper uh, significance kind of analysis. And I did so, and it took over my living room. <laughs> and uh, what, I, what the criteria I set from the beginning was uh, I wanted books, pamphlets, uh, transcripts of speeches, all that sort of thing, uh, magazine articles that were published between 1930 and the end of 1939, that were American, and more specifically, they had two distinct uh, uh, elements. They had to both posit a cause for the Great Depression and then offer a specific solution, whatever it was. Uh, it took me about two years, and I came up with 171 specific plans. From there. Okay, so then I was uh, then I had to determine essentially what framework I was going to look at these folks from, and I and I determined right away that it was I needed something to kind of analyze intellectuals. So there are three, now there's four, but at the time, two years ago, there were three competing, uh, I consider three competing um, uh, approaches for analysis. Uh, one was uh, Julian Benda, who some of you are familiar with, The Treason of the Learned, which was written in 1928. Uh, the second, of course, is Hayek, his article in 1949 about the intellectuals and socialism. And the last uh, was a book published in 1969 by a guy named John Gross. The only picture I could find of him, he was drinking wine, so that's so I, I might have to choose that guy. But his book was called The Rise and Fall of the Man of Letters. And all, all three look at intellectuals, public uh, thinkers and, and uh, public you know, crafters of opinion and, um, and, and uh, give a, a, a way of, of looking more closely at what they do. And, of course, I chose Hayek. So moving on. Hayek, in his article, by the way, he mentions, if you, if you read it, you can figure out about ten characteristics, nine or ten characteristics of intellectuals. And uh, I've looked at all of them, and I've chosen four, the four that are, are the most interesting to, to talk about this afternoon. Okay, so here's the first one. The first one is that Hayek, Hayek's first point is that intellectuals tend to be people who understand nothing in particular really well. Uh, their, their knowledge intends, uh, in fact, to be rather superficial. They're, they're not in possession of any special wisdom. And that is much to their credit, uh, if for no other reason than because what their job really is is to take disparate information out. They take a few, you know, a concept from a textbook, a personal anecdote, articles, and what they do is they craft that into a narrative, which they then put out through articles and all that sort of thing. And this was certainly the case in the Great Depression. And, and, and their lack of expertise was much to their credit. And it made their message that much more, I guess, uh, attractive because economists had been so wrong. So people started to say, well, what do these guys have to say? And so I have a few 
examples. Well, first, first this slide here shows the breakdown of that 171 individuals, dominated by writers and activists, academics, business people, all the way down to uh, a couple of actors, a soldier, and a poet. And a few that I couldn't even tell. I mean, some people wrote under pseudonyms and stuff, so that was hard to figure out. And by the way, I have an asterisk by academics. Those were mostly economics and um, economics and sociological uh, professors with a couple of uh, psychologists as well. Now, uh, here's one. This is this was um, uh, this was uh, Alfred Jones' book. It's called "Is Fascism the Answer?" And this is. Um, this is interesting because throughout the book, uh, Jones says very clearly, he's impressed with the value, this is like 1932 or so, he says, I'm impressed with the value of fascism. Space doesn't permit a detail of their marvelous progress under Mussolini. He praises the fact that they've imposed a shorter working day, which he believes is uh, uh, responsible for the lower levels of unemployment at that time. It's a system of marvelous simplicity of economy, and he is, insists throughout the book that Mussolini's, Mussolini's planned economy provides the essentials to economic recovery. But in the last couple of pages of the book, he says, well, you know, I have no real training in finance or economics, and I presume to cover no such topics. So you get that at the end. This is a picture, and, and of course, I, I, uh, one of the caveats that Hayek adds is it'd be a fatal mistake to underestimate their power for this reason, this reason being that they have no expertise. And this is a picture of a woman whose name is Goldie Layden. Goldie Layden uh, wrote a book called Distributism, in the early 1930s. And she offers not only cause, but also a solution for, for uh, I mean, not only a cause and solution for the depression, but also a key to permanent prosperity. And that key is, of course, take women out of the workplace. So what she says is that, what she says is that all women should be forced to stay at home, or they should be pensioned out of work. And her logic is, first of all, that women are taking men's jobs, and also that women not being at home, and this is the 1930s. I mean, how many women were there in the workplace as a percentage? I don't even know. But uh, The one thing that she says is that, is that it's also women being in the workplace has taken away that sort of home economic uh, instinct of women. So budgets are all screwed up, and that's one reason why we're in the Depression. And she, by the way, she, and she, by the way is the poet, so I, I should mention that. She was called the Female Poet Laureate of, um, of America. And, you know, the thing that, the thing that's interesting about this is that, um, this picture added here is of a group that was called the, they were called the Farmers National Holiday Association. And they were a kind of a militant left-leaning group, which actually, for all her, for, for the simplicity of her view and for the, for the, uh, you know, for the fact that she's a poet, they adopted her as her pet, as one of their pet economists. And they were fully on board with her. And this was several thousand people, tens of thousands, I imagine, who, who adopted her as one of their pet economists. And, um, they were, they were responsible for a number of violent attacks, including one death across uh, the Midwest in the early 1930s. And in one, in one case, uh, pulled a judge out of a car who had upheld creditors' rights and threatened to lynch him. So, being credible doesn't mean, uh, not being credible doesn't necessarily mean, uh, being dismissible. Um, here's a few others. Uh, uh, top left is the ham and eggs plan. I don't know if any of you have heard of that. Uh, that was proposed as a plan in California, but the, uh, the, the backers of the plan have every, every, you know, inclination to make it a national plan eventually. And it was run by a guy whose name was Roy Owens. And Roy Owens billed himself as an engineer economist, which is an interesting title because it recurs constantly throughout this period. And Roy Owens, it turned out, you know, there's a sociological law, I don't know what it is, maybe I can posit it here, and that is that when organizations reach a certain size, they get investigated. I don't know what the size is, but there are people who do exposés and things. Anyway, when, uh, when ham and eggs got big enough, an investigation showed that not only was Roy Owens not an engineer and not an economist, he didn't even graduate high school, and he was an ex-felon. 
So, uh, so, so they, they, even knowing this, a few years later, this organization had 330,000 members. And it was on a proposition in 1928 to become a new, either a new branch of government or to occupy some government positions. And they only lost 1.14 million to 1.39 million. So despite having, once again, uh, you know, having a lack of credibility and, and no official credentials doesn't in any way dampen the message of a lot of these groups. Uh, in the middle, the Utopians are coming. Uh, that was a group of, um, it was kind of like a technocratic group, if you're familiar with the Technical Alliance and all those guys. But it also had some mystical elements about business cycles and all that sort of thing. And um, despite the fact that the guys who ran it were, were actors who professed from the very beginning no economic experience or financial knowledge, on June 23, 1935, over 30,000 people heard to listen, heard, uh, came to the Hollywood Bowl to listen to their speeches. And then the last I mentioned here, of course, is Townsend. Um, it was only when, uh, it was only when uh, Francis Townsend got in front of Congress and was confronted by a few congressmen that it turned out that, that, that his plan, which involved the, what he billed as a very small tax to kind of pension um, people at that age, I guess it was over 60, um, would have cost half of the national income. So it would have, in some cases, multiplied, you know, uh, final retail prices by a certain amount. And uh, another personal aside is that uh, I, I love the response that they had when they were when they were trounced in, uh, in in front of Congress. They went back to the drawing board and they came out with a new motto, and the motto was "Honor thy father and mother." So they tried to appeal to your. You know, if we can't do math, we can at least you know, respect the elderly. I guess so. Like that. So. The second point of Hayek is that intellectuals generally judge all particular issues exclusively, exclusively in the light of certain very general ideas. And this, this part, this point I thought was interesting because it kind of ties, and I, uh, uh, it ties a little bit to, uh, um, some things that Rothbard said in his, um, World War I is, uh, intellectuals in power, World War I is fulfillment, because this was really the, the generation behind, this is really the generation after those. Those folks like Richard T. Eli and Woodrow Wilson were born around the time of Civil War. The average age here of these folks was roughly, they were, the average age of this 171 person was, was roughly, they were in their late 40s. They, they tended to be born about 1882, which if you, if you look at the events in their life, it's sort of telling. They, um, they, were, they were in their early teens during the Panic of 1893. They were going to college and school during the entire Progressive Era. Uh, their students tended to be, uh, their, their teachers rather, tended to be those people like Eli and Woodrow Wilson and uh, a lot of the progressivists, uh, uh, Dewey and all those guys. And, um, you know, the, uh, once again, I mean, I'm not going to go through all these, but, uh, but there are dominant themes. Some of the dominant themes are, of course, Darwinism and, and, and uh, scientism, which they just called science, but it's truly scientism. Uh, uh, that fellow in the middle you see up here, that's, um, that's, uh, 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 that's Taylor, uh, the uh, scientific management idea. Um, of course, Edward Bellamy's uh, uh, looking backward. That's the War Industries Board. Roughly 20%, and I could count, at least of those who, who, who mentioned it, roughly 20% of these 171 individuals served in some capacity with the War Industries Board. Uh, the personification of Wall Street as the, you know, the embodiment of all evil. Um, you know, there's a lot of revisionist history. What taxes have done for America? Everything. Uh, the railroads, you know, things like that. Those are some of the recurring themes. Uh, um, uh, Thorsten Veblen's Engineers in the Price System, Herbert Crowley's, uh, um, uh, gosh, what's it called? I can't, I can't remember the name of the book. Um, the Promise of American Life. Um, Teddy Roosevelt, Karl Marx. Those are, there's probably like 15 themes which occur over and over in these writings. And that's somewhat reflected in their attribution. This is the overall attribution among these individuals for the causes of the Great Depression. 
Fully one and three uh, attributed planlessness. In other words, there's no more coordination between supply and uh, between uh, production and consumption, between uh, the various uh, stages of production, and we need the government to sort of oversee that. This is the implication. Uh, overproduction, largely because a few years before the Great Depression, uh, two fellows, uh, this was uh, Waddle and Catchings, wrote a book where they posited um, over the possibility of overproduction and underconsumption and causing um, economic disconnects, a lack of purchase power, uh, those guys down on Wall Street, and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, interestingly, five attributed the, uh, the cause of the Great Depression to government, and two of those said that the government wasn't vigilant enough. We need much more government, otherwise this will keep happening. So. Let's go on here. Okay, a third point that Hyatt made was that the power of their ideas grows in proportion to their generality, abstractness, and vagueness. There are huge dividends to be paid uh, by not being specific. And even if you even if you, you you are familiar with your subject, it is in their interest to um, to 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 be as vague as possible. And second, that the climate of opinion of any period determines the importance of new facts and opinions. In other words, if if, if your message is 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 is, is going to be derailed by new information, you need to 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 integrate it. If it's not, you just pretend it's not there. Or more specifically, as Huey Long said, never explain. Details are the mother of sectarianism. So this fellow here, I'm sure some of you have heard him. This guy's called. It was named uh, uh, Stuart Chase, and Chase was an intellectual. Um, in many ways, he is kind of the uh, the, the quintessential uh, popular economist in that he was an, uh, an engineer trained at MIT, became an accountant, uh, served in the War Industries Board, uh, made a trip to Russia in the late 20s to kind of see how their experiment was going, uh, wrote some articles, and throughout the 1920s, he was a member. Pretty prominent member of the technocratic group. He studied with um, Thorsten Veblen and all those fellows. And so he was in a prominent position. He was highly visible during the Great Depression. And what he first said in 1930 when the crash occurred and when the depression started was he, he predicted, he said it would, he attributed the cause to psychology, just negative psychology. It'll be over in about a year. Everything will be fine. And he made some light references to a need maybe for more regulation. He was kind of noncommittal about all that. And in 1931, as unemployment grew and as businesses started floundering, he, uh, he, he changed his attribution of the crash to overproduction. He cited a need for more coordination, whether voluntary or, or coerced, among business and, uh, and, the, uh, uh, and the government. And in 1932, as we move on, yep, took a pretty sharp turn to the left, uh, called Marx a profit, endorsed the nationalization of industry and an inflationary campaign to, to spur spending. Further still, in 1933, he wrote an article for Harper's called If I Were a Dictator. And in that article, he not only advocated complete control of industry and finance, but also nationally enforced birth control policies and sunbathing resorts all across the country. <laughs> you, could, you, can, you could see how that would help the, uh, the economic uh, environment as well. Now, but then, you know, like that boomerang, he came right back to the middle in 1934 and uh, endorsed FDR, saying that uh, saying that uh, that the road to recovery would be through functionalism, which he never defined. But whatever functionalism is, this guy had it. Uh oh. Yep. Yeah. By 1935, Chase decided that uh, that Roosevelt's commitment to change was highly questionable, and called him an economic royalist who had made too many concessions to big business and finance. 
There's not that many years left, so he's running out of uh, <laughs> So in 1937, he advocated a complete scrapping of the Constitution, a rewrite. He said, you know, it's time to start from scratch. None of this stuff is working. And, uh, and he said, it's time to start over. The, even the amendment mechanisms weren't enough, and it was time to start from scratch. And uh, in 1939, I'm not sure exactly what happened, but um, he made a sort of a sheepish uh, admission that maybe freer competition and prices being set by markets was a better idea. So he traveled the full circle. And that, that, that illustrates uh, Hayek's point that what's important is relevance and not consistency. In fact, when I was, when I was writing, when I was reading on this, I thought, you know, if they say that, how does it say, it goes uh, something like, if the, uh, the first casualty of war is truth, then the first casualty of, of economic ideas is consistency. Something like that. So another example of this kind of shift is uh, seen in the, uh, the very far left, the uh, communist and socialist literature of the era, which was consistent throughout the entire Great Depression, from the beginning to the end, they were they were they were they were sounding the uh, the clarion for a violent revolution, well, for revolution. But the change came in mid 1935. Until then, all the literature was this kind of thing. It was it was it was, it was rife with the language of class warfareism, violent revolution, you know, uh, all that kind of thing. There was a writer from uh, New York named Akiva Liu who wrote a book where that he, he basically said to arms, everybody get your rifles, go down to Wall Street and start killing traders and brokers. And he likened the victims of the crash and, and, uh, the, uh, and unemployment to the victims of the Lusitania, the Maine. And I did a little background research, and this, this could be completely, completely off, but I attribute the change which I'll get into in 1935. In the Sixth Congress, which took place in July and August of 1928, that's the common turn, kind of a global jamboree for communists where they talk about the party line and they argue about the inarguable, I guess. They, they, they said that they predicted that the end of capitalism was, going ne- was growing near. And so they, they, they kind of the word that went out from the organelles of, 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 the, of, 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 of whoever was saying doctrine for communism was you've got to push as hard as you can. And when the crash came the very next year, it became an all-out, you know, this was their opportunity to push as hard as they could to get the, the Great Revolution going. This was the end of capitalism. The Seventh Congress took place in 1935, about halfway through the Great Depression. And the tone changed completely. And the reason why the tone changed, I, I, I attribute two reasons for the tone changing. The first being that a lot of the, a lot of the plans that were put in place, the, the real plans, not the proposed ones, like the New Deal and such, were starting to show some traction. They started to see some recovery. And on top of that, the rise of fascism greatly worried a lot of the uh, communists. So they specifically went out and tried to, uh, tried to soften their message. And uh, they took a highly conciliatory turn and, and toned down their rhetoric starting in 1935. So what you started to see is, Things like this. This plan is called democratic distribution. The word democracy is all over these things. And this fellow's name was Louis Waldman, who had been previously been a really hardcore communist in this country. And in 1936 or so, what he did was he he he, he broke from the hardliners and he actually converted several hundred thousand communist voters to FDR. Just two quick charts. I know charts are not. This has to do with the climate of opinion. And what I wanted to demonstrate here was I, I charted basically changes in the Dow Jones Industrial Average with the number of plans that were issued within the following six months. And you can very see a very strong relationship here. And this has to do with that climate of opinion. As the market gets worse, as that sort of, if you look at the market as I do in some contexts, as a sort of great voting mechanism, as the, as the, as the, um, as the environment gets worse, as the economic, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, outlook gets poorer, 
there are more, there's a rush to, to judgment and there's a whole bunch of, you know, there's sort of this, uh, this, uh, this rush to, uh, to, to, to introduce alternatives and that sort of thing. That's, that's all I meant to show here. And then this, uh, this isn't going to come out really well, but what I sought to show here were the colors, the bands, are, are with, each, with each plant that came out during the, during the Great Depression, what they attributed the cause of the Depression to. And those were pretty homogenous across. There was no real consistent trend in that case of, um, of, 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 of intellectual uh, opinion. On the other hand, the attribution of solutions was traveling in very distinct, discrete sort of waves of opinion. Early on, it was government business partnerships. Then there was more of like a coercive element to it, cartelization, forcing the businesses together and then make work programs and all that. Finally, I, you know, in the 1930s, it was anything goes, just everything, which I'll talk about in a few minutes, some of those more interesting ones there. National planning, and then, of course, you had FDR come in. And then you've got more, it went from a, from a, from a, uh, from a business to a more monetary, and then finally to a more fiscal basis. You have fiscal policy, uh, setting wages, taxes, pensioning people out of the workforce. Uh, constitutional revisionism, of course, came, uh, was an area of interest with the um, court tacking decisions and such. And then finally, what I call reconciliationism. All the books there had titles like The New Government, The New Frontier. You know, it was kind of like almost cathartic in the way they treated the changes that had been made in the New Deal. And there's two very high-level memes that I, that I detected here. In the early part of the Great Depression, everything was about coordination. There's coordinating, uh, coordinating production, coordinating people's interests, coordinating uh, um, just every, uh, every, every element of economic uh, discourse you can imagine. And later, everything was about democracy. It, it, was, almost, it was almost as if the, the meme was to sort of comfort those who questioned where we were and, and what, what the changes had been, uh, um, what, you know, sort of the... Uh, um, it was almost, uh, again, it was almost cathartic. It was almost like they were saying, don't worry, this is, what, what we have, what we have here is real democracy now. Which is, uh, arguable. Okay. And this is the last point I have, and that is that Hayek wrote that speculations about the possible entire reconstruction of society, rather than practical and short-run considerations, give public intellectuals a visionary character. It's really not fun to talk about free markets and all that. I mean, I think it is, but most people don't, because because it, it really it, it is conservative, not in a political sense, but it involves adhering to to what got us where we are. It's more fun to talk about radically recreating the world in interesting ways, and uh, it gives them an opportunity for the play of the imagination. Those who are unencumbered by much knowledge of facts, uh, they, they tend to be disinterested in technical details or practical difficulties. And uh, if, if you if you haven't thought any of this stuff was funny yet, you might now. So I have some examples here. Here's a Here's an example of something that, that occurs regularly. A regular, a pretty frequent proposal was that somewhere out there there was a mathematical equation, which if we just followed it, everything would be okay. And in this case, this is the prosperity formula. It is actually, this author says, the seventh commandment of God in economic matters, thou shalt not steal. And he moved, I actually agree with that, but anyway. Uh, it's of extreme beauty, not only those who are able to think, but will discover it. So uh, this, 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 this book is full of equations, which, of course, if you follow those, we would never have gotten into that situation in the first place. Here's another one. This guy, what was his name? Uh, I can't remember his name. Anyway, the idea is planned obsolescence. So what happens in this system? Well, the way to spur consumption, which they thought was the way of, of getting, which, which some authors attributed as the way to get the economy back on track, was 
to, you know, the, the problem is that people were holding on to things for too long. So what they recommended is if the shoe manufacturer is having a bad quarter, he tells the government, I'm, you know, my sales are down. And what the government then does is require you to turn in your shoes. You turn in your shoes and you get a ticket, and that ticket has a certain amount of money that you can use to offset the price of buying new shoes. It's, I mean, you can only imagine how this would be abused. And, uh, you know, I mean, every time I think about it, I think, I think this is the government that couldn't run the cash for clunkers. You know, something that every junkyard does anyway. I mean, they're going to do this for the entire economy. Okay. There are two here. The one on the left is the New Market Cities Plan. It will create permanent mass consumption. And it's got to be true because it's all capitalized. So, uh, you know, and basically what they, what they, Proposed was that they take two billion people and, 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 and build more cities. Who's going to live in them? What's going to happen there? That's, you know, that's all. Those are, those are later details. We're just going to build them. We're going to build cities. And this guy, Adolf Gang, uh, recommended essentially that all savings be in the hand of the government. Because the notion of hoarding, that if you're not spending, you know, you're, you're not consuming and that's keep, keeping the, that's keeping the economy down. So the government would essentially take control of all savings. A couple more. The one on the left is one of the ones uh, uh, here, uh, placing one of seven uh, of, our, of our present charitable family cases on farms, just relocating, relocating people out to the countryside. And the interesting thing here is this was in some sense realized through the Resettlement Administration, which was run by Rexford Tugwell. They actually tried some of this. Also, uh, Eleanor Roosevelt's pet project, Arthurdale. All of these were notions of, of, of resettlement of individuals out to the countryside, thinking, I guess, that they had to uh, more evenly distribute the populace or something like that. And uh, on the left is uh, this book is called Capitalism and Communism and Reconciliation. This is this is a great one. Uh, so this guy this guy's a professor and he said, you know, there's really no way of determining whether communism or capitalism is which one is better. So why don't we have a great a, a huge contest? So what he proposed was that there would be metrics proposed such as you know longevity and GDP uh, quality of life me- metrics. And that the two governments would agree to not compete with each other, would compete over a period of 10 years, and then a winner would be declared. Now, I, you know, it takes, I can't even measure the levels of naivete it, t- it takes to think that one government would say, you're right, we lost, we'll step down. The loser state would amicably just kind of like step to the side and say, you know, it was a good, good contest, but so. Anyway, that was, that was his proposal. And of course, you know, no financial crisis would be complete without a without an appearance by the Malthusians and the uh, eugenicists. Where this uh, this book has a uh, has a chapter called uh, Eugenics and Industry, and uh, you know, in one sense, he agrees with all the other planners and, and, and popular economists of the Great Depression that the problem is overproduction. But he's overproduction of people in his case. So he certainly he he seeks to dampen that. And uh, is this the two more meritism? Here's another good one. No more money. Let's get rid of money. It's a, it's a problem. Instead, what we do is the government decides what you do, or rather what the point value is of what you do. So if you, you know, if you're a, uh, if you're a doctor, you get 100 points a month, which, which translate into a certain number of credits for food and such. So, uh, so that's, I mean, I mean uh, you know, if you're a street mime, you're, you're done. I mean, you know, you're, you're, you're not going to make it. But I also like the idea that the government, I mean, who, who, if there's anybody who provides less value, less, less real value than the government, the idea that the government would be in charge of determining who has value or what they do just, you know, it staggers the mind. You're a professional video gamer or something like that, you know, you're, you're, you better move. And here's the last one. You know, there's, there's, uh, there's a lot of talk and, and, 
uh, a lot of uh, many references are made to war being the solution uh, for a bad economy. But I and I was able to find one in this group of, of um, in this group of uh, in, in the in the in the. Uh, um, this, this universe of, uh, of, of popular economists. This is a kind of mysterious army officer who recommended in 1935 that the best way to get out of the Great Depression would be to essentially wage war against Canada, Mexico, and, and, and take control of the hemisphere from the North Pole to Panama. And, uh, you know, in case you think this is a bad idea, you know, first of all, he says, a real American doesn't shudder and shrink at the notion of blood spilled on the sands of time. Right, so especially when great affairs are in the offing. So, but hopefully that comforts you. Hopefully that will get you where you're going. And you know, it's also interesting that a huge part of this book is dedicated to to fighting communism. But one of the core kind of uh, one of the core uh, uh, you know uh, beliefs about uh, the communists hold about about uh, capitalism is is the necessity of imperialism. So he's sort of playing right into their hands with this uh, with this uh, uh, proposal. And uh, just in closing, I was just going to say, I mean, today, these are all recent, uh, recent uh, images and such. Uh, you know, these ideas are alive and well. Uh, um, the, the professional thinkers are going to be with us in every economic environment. And um, you can see echoes of all these guys. And, uh, for example, you know, uh, if, I don't know if any of you are familiar with Larry Kudlow on CNBC. Well, for years, Larry has been saying that he's a free marketeer and all that. In September, you know, maybe the week before uh, Lehman fell down, uh, he, adv- he, he threw his weight behind, uh, behind uh, Paulson, saying, you know, echoing essentially what Bush said, which is, you know, we, we must destroy the free market to, to save it. And then six months later, in February of 2009, he, had a, he sponsored an essay contest called, you know, why, why free markets are superior to, to you know, collectivism or anything like that. And, uh, yeah, I mean, that's, that's essentially my research. You know, these, um, uh, you know, the more, the more, the more thoroughly we can identify who these people are and, and, and the way that they operate, you know, that it is that much more thoroughly that we can address and, you know, kind of join effectively the, um, the battle for ideas. Thank you.